Hi, I'm Ben, and you're listening to Deep Cut. As you can probably already tell, it's just Ben here, and this is kind of my summer diary for 2022, where it's just my thoughts on the films I've seen over the summer of 2022, and a little TV thrown in as well. And if you're interested in Wilson and Eli's film summers, be sure to check out their episodes as well, and I'm sure they have great thoughts on films that they've seen. And I hope you enjoy my voice, because it's just me all the way through this. And... There will be links in the episode notes so you can skip to the films that you want to hear about. And there are very, very mild spoilers in my thoughts, but I generally try to keep it quite spoiler-free. And these are very brief thoughts, so I don't really go into very deep dives about these films. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please remember to rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. And be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with us on Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. And you can join us on our Discord server to talk about movies, and you'll find a link to that in the description. And without further ado, here's my summer of 2022. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Benjamin Yap, and this is the start of my summer soundbites, a little audio diary of the films I've been watching, starting on June the 1st on which I did not watch anything. Today is actually June the 4th, and the first film I watched in June was actually Jacques Demy's Donkey Skin. And I'll repeat what I wrote in my Letterboxd review, which is that this film, it feels like every scene could turn into a porn at any point because of the way of the costumes, the saturated colors, the primary colors, the way that the lighting is somewhat high-key and also a little flat somehow, that it feels like if there was more dramatic or more moody lighting, that it would feel less stark. But because of the way that it is lit, it feels like the colors and the set design and the costume design is so in-your-face as to be almost unrealistic in a weird, fantastical way where we are aware of the fact that we are watching a movie that is based on a fairy tale and that these are actors wearing costumes and that these are people painted blue and these are horses painted blue and red, which is honestly just ridiculous. I did enjoy it, mostly, although a little strange watching a, a fairy tale in which the main moral tale or the main moral takeaway is to not commit incest which okay weird fairy tale to be telling a story to a kid so that's donkey skin and today i just finished watching peter bogdanovich's what's up doc it's a barbara streisand and ryan o'neill starring picture uh, a kind of classic screwball comedy that i think was based on what i'm reading made after the time of the screwball comedy and it was Pretty good fun, although I did take some time to kind of warm up to it because the beginnings are a little slow in which it's setting up the four identical plaid bags and the different characters. I don't think all of the humor necessarily lands. Some of the humor that's in the dialogue is not necessarily laugh out loud funny. It's amusing, yes, but not 
funny in the way that I imagine screwball comedy to be funny, not as engaging as something like His Girl Friday, but the car chase that is kind of the penultimate set piece before the courtroom stuff is freaking incredible because it is a lot of stunt driving on location in San Francisco and I'm sure it must have taken so much effort to lock down streets and to do all that stunt driving, hoping to do as little damage as possible to public property because they were not doing this on like an open desert or something. They were actually having these cars zooming around on the streets of San Francisco, on those hilly hills, jumping on those humps and crashing into each other. So I'm sure a lot of cars were damaged and they had to pay for in the making of this, but very ballsy and really pushing how far they're taking it with a screwball comedy and then sending cars into the into the San Francisco Bay. Honestly, ridiculous. Great ending. Don't know how I feel about Barbara Streisand's character who is just an embodiment of just pure chaos coming in and just wrecking everyone's days. But I like the energy to it and people are talking about how she's essentially a live-action Looney Tune, which makes a lot of sense when I think about it, especially when one of the first things that you see her do is to actually grab a piece of carrot and, and bite on it. Something I didn't really think about at the time. But the, the film does end with a little bit from one of the Bugs Bunny cartoons, also owned by Warner Brothers, which produced the film. With Peter Bogdanovich, I don't really know how I feel about him. I know he's a little bit... His career really washed out after a few of his early features. I'm not necessarily drawn to his work. I'm not, not necessarily somebody who is super into the stuff that he's doing, like with the uh, last picture show, but it's fun. Almost a classical Hollywood kind of story, but done in the new Hollywood era, which is, is pretty interesting. Ben here again. It's June the 4th, and I have just seen... Kurosawa's Sanjuro, which is the companion piece to Yojimbo. I saw Yojimbo a long time ago and my memory's a little hazy, but I think Yojimbo was stronger generally in terms of the narrative and the way that the situation is set up. Sanjuro feels a little bit more haphazard in a way, but still fun. The blocking in this is really good. Essentially, every scene has at least 10 characters because Sanjuro is one character played by Toshiro Mifune. And the other main character really is nine different men who kind of operate as a unit and they're always moving around and they're filling the frame with their samurai haircuts. It's very well done and very nice to watch, especially satisfying when I think about it, when you see the hits kind of like move out and like fill the frame exactly or avoid being obscured by something in the foreground it's all very well blocked the action's not bad i think the early scenes especially when sanjuro is killing multiple people feel very bloodless very visibly bloodless and i think that's just kind of the way that it was making this film in the 60s and that being able to do that kind of blood it would be very difficult in such big scenes although there is a great scene at the very end when sanjuro finally kills I guess what you would call his nemesis. And there's a great spurt of blood, which really amplifies that moment and also calls into focus the earlier, more bloodless deaths where people are just clutching unripped robes and falling down with no blood on them whatsoever. Kind of like a light Kurosawa film, but still with all the hallmarks of his usual directing. 
I've just seen Terence Davies' The Long Day Closes from 1992, I think one of his more renowned films. The only other Davies film I've seen is Distant Voices Still Alive, which is incredible the way that it is able to chronicle a time using a lot of music and really very fluidly moving between scenes. And that's what I take away from Long Day Closes, which with every transition, there's a lot of care that is being placed into how we move from one scene to the other. And the film is extremely elliptical and it's got almost no plot. It's like traveling through the memories of its main character, Bud. I think that's what I struggle with a little bit where the lack of plot means there's nothing to latch onto. It's really a almost theme park ride through one boy's lonely memories. And there aren't really distinct crests and valleys in his memories. It is more kind of a tone poem and he has this distinct loneliness where he is surrounded by adults at home and surrounded by kids that he doesn't seem to understand when he's in school. But I really enjoy watching the way Davis decides to go from one scene to the other and the musical inclusions are very touching and I can imagine if that one has any kind of emotional attachment to any of the references that he uses, the more traditional songs that the characters sing or to the songs from films that Bud sees that we never watch him watch specifically, that those moments would have even more power. But I think for me, as a younger person than Davis, I guess, like I don't think it has that same power over me, but I imagine that if you were watching it and you were the same age as Terrence Davies, that these memories would have much more emotional power. It is the 8th of June, and I've watched a bunch of films in the past few days. On the 6th, I watched The Northman in the theaters, which is Robert Eggers' Viking epic thing that came out this year, and it was fine. The spectacle was great. The action set pieces were nice to behold, but I think the main thing that I felt was lacking was a sense of narrative momentum or urgency, even though you know that, okay, Skarsgård is going to go kill the person that killed his dad, and there's like a few twists near the end, but there is a distinct lack of emotional, like, there's no emotional core to this that like sinks its hooks into you. I think about the Rajamuli stuff we've been watching on Deep Cut and how they have layers upon layers of emotional connectivity between all the characters that keep upending each other, which this one is very simply a revenge plot where man must kill other man and must overcome certain obstacles on the way there. And the problem with this, those obstacles also don't feel as difficult as they need to be because it's a film with prophecy, right? We have Bjork with no eyes telling... Um, Amleth that he's going to kill his uncle, but because the prophecy feels like it's going to be fulfilled to a T, it doesn't feel like Amleth would at any point fail on his quest. And because of that, when he's enacting his plot for revenge, there are no 
nothing goes wrong really like there doesn't seem to be any like hiccups in the plan and i think even with a prophecy as vague and generic like this the plan needs to fuck up and if only the plan had those screw-ups like a heist film you know a heist film never goes well and people must improvise and you get to see that the main character is smart strong and able to overcome those obstacles here Emleth executes the plan to a T and kills his uncle and some other stuff doesn't quite go the way he planned but generally speaking the plan just kind of happens and that I think detracts from the emotional stakes of this thing and the romantic subplot with Olga the witch played by Anya Taylor-Joy is okay a little tepid the chemistry is not quite there and I don't know how I feel about the weird vision quest stuff when he's like seeing his family tree and stuff like I get it but I think it pulls its punches in terms of how weird it could be I think it could have been way weirder but now it's just flashes of image or like flashes of some weird CG stuff it doesn't really quite work for me but the action was well done and I think Edgar's still doing some of the best period stuff that we're seeing on the modern screen today and after the Northman, I watched kind of back-to-back, -back, or on back-to-back -back days, the original 1986 Top Gun, directed by Tony Scott, as well as the Joseph Kosinski-directed sequel, Top Gun Maverick, that came out, what's this, 22 plus 14, 36 years later. That is crazy. I can't believe something like this has happened. The original Top Gun, I thought, was not good, and mainly because the plot of it is so strange there is barely a plot here if anything top gun is more of a romantic drama than it is a plain dogfighting action movie that romantic story is so boring and so weird and i actually don't think tom cruise is charming at all which maybe is more about the sensibilities of male attractiveness at the time and com compared to now but He's just such an annoying dick in this that I just cannot get on board. And that romantic drama really sucks up so much of the runtime and is not interesting at all. And there is nothing there of dramatic interest to me, at least. And I want to see more of the dramatic plane fighting stuff. And there is a little bit of this, but it's a little bit too kind of Tony Scott for me. And... Yeah, like, I, I don't really understand the appeal of this and why people thought they needed a sequel, and I get that Tom Cruise is an international superstar and that people love military shit, even in countries that don't have that kind of military shit. I get it. But yeah, strange film to make a sequel for, but Top Gun Maverick, actually pretty good. The aerial sequences, really, really fantastic. The use of the white shots in the cockpit, really kind of jaw-dropping being able to see the landscapes and the actor's face in the same frame and the way that the aerial stuff is kind of choreographed is definitely one-upping what was happening in the original Top Gun and I guess I prefer kind of grizzled Tom Cruise more than kind of fresh-faced Tom Cruise because here they really trying to enhance the emotional stakes of his character while retaining Maverick's kind of ethos and the way that he kind of lives his life and the way that his character is even though he is older, he is still the Maverick that we know. But it's funny how this film can essentially be a beat-for-beat -beat sequel matching the original Top Gun. Yes, the romantic drama stuff is a little less 
kind of important in this one, but it's still there with very similar beats. And then the beats with Tom Cruise is also there. Like you have the first mission and then after that immediately to Tom Cruise being reprimanded. So there is this strange, like you could map both films onto each other and they would kind of match up in terms of how they're trying to tell a story. And I guess you could say that, you know, this is just how stories are. They're all going to be told with similar kind of structures, especially with Hollywood films, if they're kind of three X structures. But here it's a little bit too close to not make me forget the Hollywood churn that's happening, that they are the cash grab happening right now. Like you even have topless sports scene to match onto the originals volleyball scene, but here we got football on the beach. However, the last climax is actually amazing. Like I felt like the first two acts were kind of dragging the heels a little bit trying to up the stakes, but then also not really going anywhere. It was just a constant repetition of they're not going to make it, they're not going to make it, and then bam, let's just go on the mission. And then the mission itself, really awe-inspiring. But when I really think about it now, the fact that it doesn't match up, the fact that the pilots don't feel quite prepared for the mission and then succeed the mission doesn't really make sense to me. But still a great sequence that third act i think really elevates the whole thing and i wish the first two acts could have been a little bit more interesting these kind of legacy sequels really love doing that bored with my life stuff and then here comes my past coming back to me in the form of a son a clone or whatever it is and it's starting to show it seems and i wonder what we're gonna get next so that's the northman top gun and top gun maverick see you on the next one Hi, it's Ben here again. Today is the 9th of June, and this morning I watched The Virgin Suicides, which is Sofia Coppola's debut feature, which I haven't seen. And it's good. Um, nothing to really write home about, but I, I did enjoy it, and I found the, the framing of it, which I know comes from the novel that it's based on, where you have these adolescent boys who are looking at the girls who live together and their perspective, how it shapes how they think about the the girls is very interesting. And I think Coppola does such a great job in kind of crafting this kind of world and the way that they kind of exist. It's quite difficult to explain. And there isn't, honestly, there isn't really a strong overarching plot, but that's not something that I felt was missing. She does cram, I feel, a lot of texture and kind of different nuance to the way that we kind of perceive the girls. I guess in hindsight, thinking about it now, a few hours later, there wasn't that much depth to it as I would have, I guess, liked. But I did like it a lot. And I think she has this very nice soft touch to the story as well as the kind of direction that he, she does to the young cast. Yeah, but I guess now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I didn't like it as much as I did in the moment of watching it. Because I think it feels a little thin thinking about it now. Like, I understand it's supposed to be a film that's about teenage angst or whatever through this kind of horrific kind of event or recounting of an event. But what is it really trying to say about girlhood or about living within religious households? 
and what is it trying to say about the dark heart of American suburbia, which is this is not the first film to do that. So yeah, I don't know if it's really trying to say anything. Not that it necessarily needs to, but it does create a nice tone to kind of let you explore that on your own. And then this afternoon, I watched the 2022 Tamil language thriller film directed by Lokesh Kanagaraj called Vikram. Three hours long, extremely violent action thriller. This film does not let up. I mean, of the kind of Indian cinema from this year that I've seen, it definitely isn't as good, I think, as RR. And I think also because RR is, has kind of a, a sweet bone to it, whereas Vikram is extremely cynical and extremely um, bitter and violent in a way that's not as fun, maybe, as RR. It is kind of ultra-masculine in a way that's not as celebratory as RR, but more kind of diabolical almost and obviously has a huge obsession with bullets and guns and fighting and knives it's much more gruesome but there are some great fight sequences here you have the bolt camera which is this high speed camera that's on a crane that can do these really precise robotic crane moves and it's used to great effect during a central fight scene in the middle of the film and I kind of wish they didn't use it again because they do use it again in a later fight scene and it, it kind of, I feel, takes away from the impact of that middle fight scene where there's a big reveal to one of the identities of the characters. I did find a plot to be a little bit like twisty in a way that felt too kind of telegraphed and I guess I'm starting to see a lot of that in the kind of Indian melodramas in these kind of thriller films. But this one I felt was a bit messy and there was just so much double crossing going on that was interesting but not necessarily engaging because they felt like twists for the sake of having twists and also I think the latter half of it started to drag for me because it was just a lot of violence over and over again and while some of the fight scenes are great they do kind of get a little bit repetitive and I don't think there is enough going on to kind of justify doing these many fight scenes if you're not going to kind of think of a different way of covering another set piece fight scene like it needs to be different it can't just be different people fighting and so i wish there was more differentiation between these set pieces so that every new one is like a surprise or like something exciting and new because for example you have the boat camera sequence for the first time it comes up that's really exciting really interesting the different way of covering a fight that they haven't done before and then it really I think fails to up the ante in its third act and I was starting to doze off in in extremely violent scenes because it was just getting a bit tiresome. And back to the plot, like I th I think it's trying to cram what I would say is a TV series kind of plot in two or three hours, which I mean I commend it for it, but I think trying to do that, it kind of falls over itself I think a little bit and kind of I guess maybe sets up a sequel at the end. So uh, I'm interested to see what that is, but yeah, that's Vikram. But what I really want to talk about today is actually this 2021 British TV show called We Are Lady Parts, which I think aired on the BBC as well as is on Peacock right now. And this is just fantastic. And I think in hindsight, probably my favorite show from 2021 because of its cultural specificity. You have these Muslim girls in a punk band singing these incredibly written punk songs, which are both kind of like 
punk anthems as well as quite funny in a way that feels universal, even though it is rooted in um, their Muslim identity. And I don't know how it does this magic. Like, I am not a Muslim girl in a punk band, and I felt like I identified so much with the feelings that they have, and like, I felt so much empathy for these characters, even though it is just kind of trying to do a lot of broad comedy in some certain senses. And it is also mining comedy from that cultural specificity and creating drama that is not something that you would see in something else because of that cultural specificity. And I think within its six very short episodes, I think it creates a great arc and leaves room for more things to happen, takes surprising kind of conclusions to its different plot threads, which leave things open, but also feel like not the most obvious answer to this plot thread. And I think by doing those things in its kind of different subplots, like it allows itself to feel not so rote or rudimentary in terms of the kind of long line you're reading, you know, Muslim girl, punk band, like there's some, something you can do here which would be so kind of by the numbers, you know, just a similar story, but with Muslim identity kind of just thrown in there. And I think this really nails it. And the cast is amazing. Uh, shout out to the one who's playing the main character's mom who steals every scene she's in, terrifically performed and written. The main cast is also fantastic. They all kind of embody very different Muslim women and they're so good at kind of being this family and then all having kind of a very unique perspective. So that's all very well performed and written as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I also just watched the premiere for the new Miss Marvel show on Disney+, Plus, which was okay and also, you know, trying to do this Pakistani-American identity and trying to put that as part of a story. And that feels like there is this commodification of that ethnic identity to real-in viewers, but not necessarily trying to think about what that identity can be used to tell a very culturally specific and interesting story to that identity. Whereas We Are Lady Parts is trying to tell this broad comedy, but has drama that is rooted in that cultural specificity. Just being able to kind of compare these two at just kind of coincidentally really kind of shows you how you can treat that kind of thing with different touches. Yeah, so really liked We Are Lady Parts. That's 9th of June. Really watching a lot of stuff this, this month, but we'll see how things land. It is the 11th of June, or rather past midnight on 12th. And I've just finished watching Cure which I would love to get into. But let's start what I watched this morning, which was John luc Godard's Band of Outsiders, which has been on my watch list for a very long time. And with this watch, I've decided that I cannot be bothered with Godard, really. And I feel like it's the kind of cinema that is a little bit... I don't know, it just feels so thin. Like, there are good scenes here and there, but as a whole, what is this about? Is it just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks? Like, even when you look at the key scenes that people celebrate, like the Louvre scene or the dancing scene, like, great scenes in their own right, but then as part of a whole, they feel quite meaningless, and maybe it is a film about meaningless, about people who are building their lives upon the framework of films themselves. Like, these characters are cinephiles, or these characters want to be criminals. These characters are characters. It's almost like they know they are characters. And... 
it sounds very smart when you're talking about it, but the experience of watching the film is not that engaging. So I think I'm done with Godard for now, at least. And I don't know if I'll ever grow to like him anymore because the kind of stuff that he's doing feels very aimed at younger film goers. And I will only get older. And I feel like I've already missed the boat on having a reason to love Godard. So might be might be over for me. But let's talk about Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. I've seen only one other Kiyoshi Kurosawa film, which was the recent Wife of a Spy, which I thought was okay, but was also kind of a little bit dry for me. It was lacking in engagement for me as what I thought would be like kind of a tense kind of spy film. Cure, however, is a masterclass in form and sound design the way he uses those long shots. It is a film that creates such a strong sense of disquiet through its image and sound that is so palpable. I watched this with headphones on and it was one of the, not even creepy, but just unsettling experiences I've had watching a movie. And I think it is the way that there is this kind of passive nature to most of the shots until he decides to cut to something that is not as passive, whether it's a close-up on an object or a piece of set dressing or whatever it is, or when he moves the camera slowly from the character to something else. These moments always make me kind of sit up and be like, what are you going to show me this time, Kurosawa? Like, it always feels like these lengthy camera moves are kind of baiting you into like leaning in because you're like, what's going to happen? You do not know. And they're never that shocking. It's just the next thing. And I think it's just that kind of very confident approach to it lends this so much disquieting power. And so many of the shots are so long where it's all about blocking and people moving around. And by virtue of kind of just doing this constantly, having these long scenes of people talking, he creates this rhythm to the proceedings that feel very almost tranquil because there is that tranquil quality with the so-called antagonist of the film. And it's almost like the film is trying to lull you the same way that the antagonist is. And from a narrative standpoint, it gives up the ghost really early and then you're not really sure where it's going to go. And is it especially surprising where it goes? Not necessarily, but... The journey there is very disquieting, unsettling. Um, yeah, really good stuff. I can't wait to watch other Kurosawa stuff. I've heard really good things about Tokyo Sonata and Pulse. So can't wait to get to those. Hi, Ben here again. It is the 13th of June. And I missed a diary from yesterday where I watched with Stillman's Last Days of Disco, which I think came out in 1998, which I really, really enjoyed. Chloe Seveny and Kate Beckinsale are fantastic as these two really opposing kind of characters. And I really enjoyed this one because I think Stillman actually really allowed himself to have more fun with the characters. He always has the kind of Chris Eigenman character that's always a very specific type, which is always fun. But with this one, the use of disco is so much fun and just following them going out night after night and then having these two kind of opposing female characters kind of butt hits because they have very different ways of looking at life and just very different personalities. It's very fun to watch. 
I ended up giving it five stars. This probably isn't a perfect movie, honestly, but I was engaged throughout and was having a good time. And more so than his other films, I think. And I think it's because of the disco or the use of music that really elevates this one above the rest. And people love Chloe Sevigny, but I love Kate Beckinsale in this. She's like pitch perfect as this kind. I don't really know. There's no way to describe her. She's extremely attractive, but also really funny and runs her mouth and just says the, the not crazy stuff, but just like says the most like no filter type stuff. And is constantly funny and is a great kind of mouthpiece for Stillman's wit and the kind of dialogue that he's writing. Kind of like a, a female version of the Chris Eichmann character that he likes to write. And this version, Des, is very similar to the kind of characters that he had in Barcelona as well as in Metropolitan. It's really funny that he has this annoying white guy as kind of like the muse of his films and that he would recur. And even though the different films are supposed to be actually related with, with characters appearing from those films in this one. But Chris Eichmann is this one character in this that shouldn't be here because he is in those other films as well. But yeah, I enjoyed it. And then today I watched um, Ellis Warwalker's The Wonders. I've seen one of her other films, the 2019 Happy as Lazaro, which I really loved. It was one of my favorite films of that year because of its sort of interesting brand of magical realism and it's very pastoral kind of imagery and with the wonders you have this pastoral imagery as well which she is so good at like the best word i can think of to describe the wonders is that it's very organic looking like the way that she's covering it but she lets these scenes kind of run and it doesn't feel like she has an agenda with the story like she it feels like she's trying to just kind of present this kind of world but then there's like bits of plot that are scattered in i can't say for sure what the film is really about or like what it's trying to say and it is maybe trying to capture like something that's fading away and then using the kind of tv show to show the kind of commodification of um these kind of traditional food making in italy also the other thing is like i don't know what language is being spoken here like the main male character who plays the father of gelsomina is speaking german many times i think i'm very sure it's german but he's also speaking italian and then the helper Coco is also speaking German. Extremely confused. I understand it's an international co-production, but there were so many languages kind of flying about. And I was like, not sure when, what language is being spoken. And I really wish I did because I felt like that would have given me more context to what was going on and like the geographical area that this place is in. Because it definitely feels like it's in the middle of somewhere, like in the middle of two countries. I think as like an indie film, it has this thing where it is planting a lot of things that don't necessarily pay off like you have this character martin who they are like foster who used to be a or not used to be he is like a young delinquent who has done a lot of juvenile crimes and it doesn't really pay off that well but they do well enough with this element and like to try and kind of create like a mood and you have different things that pay off like with the honey and the production of honey where you have some dramatic stuff but it's really not the point of it i think and I think that's the thing I always struggle with like when I watch something like this where I ask myself what's the point of it and I think that's why Happiest Lazaro really kind of was so incredible to watch because even if if I might not know what the point is it's kind of feat of magical realism or cinematic trickery or whatever you want to call it that kind of turn of storytelling really makes it more magical and more fun to watch 
here this one the magic is really in the natural way of doing things like the beekeeping which is mesmerizing the watch that apparently she did illegally and also the appearance of a camel which i don't know what you do with a camel when you're a beekeeper which honestly doesn't make any sense but it's like this wow factor that she kind of adds in i did enjoy it because it still is able to kind of tell a engaging story in a very kind of unique setting that i this is very hard to find like this kind of pastoral setting and of course only Rollocka can do this because her parents used to be beekeepers so there you go so that's last days of disco and the wonders it's been here again it's the 18th of june and i've missed a bunch of movies that i haven't recorded my thoughts about since i saw the wonders on the 14th so there's just going to be quick quick ones that i'm going to go through i watched roman polanski's 1965 film Repulsion, which was okay. I can understand why it was heralded at the time, but now it feels, I think, in retrospect, feels a little cheap and a little bit uninteresting in terms of what it's trying to say with um, this woman played by Catherine Deneuve's kind of schizophrenia or the kind of hallucinations that she's having. It's a bit messy, and I find that aside from being kind of a stylistic exercise and psychological horror it doesn't really have much to carry it and it could have gone somewhere to say something about male and female relations and how this woman can be so repulsed by men and and the men around her and how that translates to actual terror that she is whether terror that she should have and she should not have i think that would be much more interesting but now it kind of feels like a filmmaking exercise but it's, it's, I think, Polanski's second feature film. Then I saw a huge stinker, which is Jurassic World Dominion, which I didn't really want to see, but my parents had free tickets, so I just went with them. I did not see Fallen Kingdom, but this is just terrible. I don't want to waste so much time talking about Jurassic World Dominion, but it's bad because, I mean, the, the main thing everyone's going to say is, you go to Jurassic Park, kind of franchise movie, what do you want to see? You want to see dinosaurs. But here, the main conflict is about freaking bugs and no one cares about the bugs people care about the dinosaurs and it feels like the plot and the stakes are so separate from the thing that people go to a jurassic world slash park movie about which is dinosaurs and the horror of dinosaurs and the wonder of dinosaurs so you are having this plot about locusts that no one cares about and from what i could tell the second movie in this new trilogy ends with dinosaurs kind of roaming the earth and humans having to live with dinosaurs you know roaming around central park like pigeons and there is so much more interesting stuff there where you talk about dinosaurs juxtaposed with daily life that would have been so much more interesting but instead most of this film is set in this valley which i guess is like the isla nubla or something and all the dinos are there and then that takes them away from the real world and so we ignore everything about how dinosaurs are living side by side with human beings so what's the point of this doesn't make sense and the fan service is terrible and the plot is so packed with conveniences so that we can get from point a to point b it's very uninteresting it's trying to be the wrong kind of action movie i feel it's like trying to be like a Bond movie at some points, which I find is very strange. And yeah, I, I think the Jurassic Park movies are about horror and about wonder. And I think 
this thing just misses the mark and it's trying to be kind of a generic action blockbuster, which it shouldn't be because that just makes it generic. Like you could have so much more fun of this, but of course, once again, Colin Trevorrow is dropping the ball on this. And I, sometimes I wonder why some people get jobs in Hollywood and can continue to make so much money making just absolute dog shit. But you know, them's the breaks, right? Yesterday, I watched Collateral, which is the Jamie Foxx slash Tom Cruise starring Michael Mann flick from 2004, I think. And that is a good movie. Like, there's so many things wrong with it in terms of plot holes and conveniences, but it is the kind of action movie that because of stakes and because of the way that a plot is structured you're on board for the ride because it is so inventive and the way that it changes the dynamics between these two main characters helps to kind of bring the plot forward and people talk about how tom cruise kind of his character who is an assassin who is making jamie fox's life just a living hell is kind of like trying to be this cab driver's life coach, despite the fact that he's ruining his life, which is just the weirdest kind of way of treating this almost weird buddy movie dynamic, which really works, I think, because it lends the film something a little bit off, that would, which makes it different from what it could have just been, which is something more simple. And I think that little wrinkle makes it much more interesting to think about and to watch. And the character work makes it sing, really, I think. The action's okay. I, I don't, nothing to really write home about, I feel. I also found it weird that the Chinese guy that they're trying to get called Peter Lim is actually speaking Korean and is surrounded by Koreans. So huge misstep. People do some research, very basic research. Um, yeah, but I think overall, really solid kind of action thriller filmmaking. And I have to say that this is maybe the perfect role for Tom Cruise because he's single-minded, focused, intense, very weird, always trying to give you advice. This is, I think, the role Tom Cruise is meant to play more so than an Ethan Hunt or a Maverick or whatever. This feels exactly the speed that Tom Cruise is, and I don't think anyone else has figured that out yet. And I think this is the role that Tom Cruise would like to be the least associated with because it is so different from the star image and persona that he would like to cultivate moving forward. He doesn't want to be seen as this intense, weird, insane person anymore, I think. <laughs> but he is. Anyway, this morning I watched my first Romeo film in a long time, um, which is the first period piece that I've seen from him, which is the Marquise of O, which is in German, which really surprised me because I was like, German. I thought this man was French, but apparently he learned German so that he could write an essay about some German Goethe text or something. I don't know. Anyway, but this whole thing's in German. And it is based on a novella from, I think, the early 1800s. And really, really sensitive topic here that they're tackling with this, which is essentially a woman who is widowed and has two kids and never wants to remarry is turns up pregnant and then her Family doesn't believe that she has not had sexual relations with other men, and it's because of this infatuation this Russian count has with her. Not sure if it's a spoiler, but I think it is so... Like, this subject is so fraught, and I don't know how I feel about the ending, and I don't know how people thought about the ending when this came out, but super problematic in so many ways, but I think handled quite deftly in terms of what Romero is doing, and he's being very faithful to text as far as I can tell, and... The kind of visual, the visuals which 
lens by Nestor Almendros look fantastic. Like frames look like paintings and the kind of philosophical conversations that people are having is so like in Romero's wheelhouse. But the fact that this is more about manners and about honor, more so than about love, that his contemporary stuff is about, that it lends a little different dimension to this because it feels like it is commenting on this concept of honor and living honorably and kind of the way that you present yourself to society because you have your image to protect. And I think that lends a different tone to this than his contemporary stuff and adds a different topic to the, the things that he talks about because contemporary stuff tends to be about love and just love over and over again. People talk about the types that they were into. But this one, because you have this concept of honor and promising and all that, that the things they talk about is a little bit different. But I have to say, the main thing I think about now is like, I wonder what a Romarian kind of Austin film would look like. Would it just look like all the Austin films we've already seen? Because, you know, those are really about manners and etiquette, which this film was also kind of about, but with a much more seedy, kind of sordid backstory. Yeah, really interesting. I heard more great things about Percival, which apparently is much more visually interesting or inventive. Uh, this is very much just a period piece, but it looks fantastic and um, well acted. That's all for today. I am trying to watch a four-hour film today, which is Jacques Rivette's The Beautiful Troublemaker, or something else in French which I cannot pronounce, um, but we'll see how that pans out. It's the 19th of June, been here again, and since I've seen The Marquise of O, I've seen... I did do it, I didn't watch the four-hour-long 19, I think, 95 movie from Jacques Rivette, The Beautiful Troublemaker, or in French, La Belle Noisou. And I've seen one other Rivette film, which is the very long as well, three hours only though, Celine and Julie Go Boating, which I didn't really know how I felt about. It's extremely strange. And I've also seen parts of Out One, but I couldn't continue watching because I just wasn't sure where it was going, and it's just absolutely one of the longest film maybe maybe tv experiences ever yeah so i wasn't sure what to expect with la belle noisu but surprisingly for a fall film it does go by faster than you think and i think that is because the kind of process that you're watching which is there are these extremely extended sequences where you watch the painter paint this model was posing for him and you're literally watching this in real time seeing the image unfold and appear and they are mesmerizing and those sequences probably take up a lot of the runtime and they are just good to watch i had to watch this in two parts so i watched like two hours and i took a break from dinner and i came back and watched the other two hours and both how both pairs of two hours did not feel that long and it was engaging throughout. I don't know how I feel about it in terms of what it's trying to say thematically because I understand that there's something going on in terms of the push and pull between the artist and subject, but it is so ethereal in terms of what it's trying to say about that relationship. It's kind of there, but it doesn't necessarily have something concrete that it wants to say. It's kind of just exploring the tone of that relationship, which is interesting and interesting to watch there's parts of it that i don't really know what to make of in terms of like 
the artistic jealousy or when the model's boyfriend's sister comes and there's a whole subplot which feels like it doesn't add that much. And also the total tease of not being able to see the final painting is so annoying, but I get it. I get why there's no way you can see this painting because the painting will never live up to anyone's expectations, which maybe is kind of what the film is about. It's about kind of artistic perfectionism and not really in a philosophical way, but rather just in a in, in using action. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one to kind of talk about and like glean meaning from. But definitely very watchable and interesting to see and it's very well acted and gorgeous. Like the production design in this is fantastic. Like the main painter studio has this use of blues that make it so cohesive and nice to look at. And I think the color use in the production design is very specific, especially when you look at the kind of um, the other women in this who are always in reds and the blues, which are kind of connected with the painting studio as well as the painter, the master painter himself. Yeah, very, very precise use of color here, which I found very surprising because I felt like with the rest of Rivette's work that I've seen, partial parts of Out One as well as Selena Julie, that stuff all felt very loosey-goosey in a very almost improvisational way. And this morning I watched Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is, I think, the third film in what they call his Father Knows Best trilogy. And that's just a good movie, man. Like, it's a perfectly pitched kind of comedy drama. It's extremely light with some heavy scenes. And if you're Asian or Chinese, then you will understand the kind of emotional backbone that this has and, like, the way that fathers and children kind of relate. It has a twist at the end, which kind of saw coming because of things I've seen all recent times. But really funny that that's kind of the twist that people tend towards in this kind of films about generations within the Asian family. And um, yeah, it's just very well acted, very fun to watch. The interactions are always good. And there's like two big twists where people leave the house, which feels so sudden and random that I would almost not point out, but it's just so fun the way that Ang Lee kind of handles it. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. And the food sequences are to die for. The food looks incredible. Really solid movie. Well, on to the next one. See you around. It's Ben here. It's 28th of June. It's been a while since I've done one of these. Uh, in the past, I guess, 10 days, I've seen five different movies. Two of which are Michael Mann movies, actually. After starting with Collateral and kind of going through his other work. The first of which was Manhunter, which was from 1986 which is based on this, this guy's name, I can't remember, the Hannibal, one, of the Hannibal, one of the Hannibal novels, the first one, Red Dragon, but it's called Manhunter. And it has this extremely moody tone throughout it. I was surprised by how kind of slow it was. I was hoping that it would be more action-packed, and it wasn't, which was not great because I was watching it kind of late at night and a little tired and getting kind of sleepy. So I think I watched it in two parts. I watched the rest of it the next day. As a psychological kind of thriller thing, we're about this FBI agent Will trying to get inside the mind of the serial killer. It works, but it's not exactly, I think, the most engaging as much as I wish it could have been. But also really reminded me of the Hannibal TV series, which I remember very little of, but remember how stylish it was when I watched it. 
I think it was like three seasons, and that was also really good. But starting to really understand what that series was trying to do about the kind of doubling of the FBI profiler as well as the murderer and like how they kind of become the same person, which is interesting. The problem with the animal movies is that the tendency of the kind of killer to become this kind of generic serial killer type thing that usually has some sort of disability or defect or something, which, or in the, in Silence of the Lambs being somebody who is, has some kind of gender dysphoria, which eh, doesn't really age well in today's age in terms of making that your kind of, or trying to make that your kind of repulsive killer or pitching it that way, which is a bit problematic, of course. And then I also rewatched Heat, which is, which I watched a while ago and didn't really think that much about it. But Heat is just a very, very good action movie. And there's nothing much to really say about it. I think, like, is it a perfect action movie? It's hard to say. I think it is interesting how you have this scene between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro like having coffee, the kind of cop and robber having this sit down, which is really interesting, which is, you know, part of man's ammo where like he has these action thriller movies where he also has very long dialogue scenes, which kind of makes him stand apart from the typical action movie stuff where it's, you know, action beat over action beat. Heat is good. I think the only reason I don't think it's a perfect action movie like most people do is that it kind of feels like it could have been longer. And I think it kind of whiffs on the things that it doesn't spend enough time on. And I think it feels like it could have been a TV series, which it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a TV series uh, in its original incarnation as LA Takedown. So it's a bit odd uh, watching Heat and having these thoughts and also feeling like we could have spent more time on this kind of cat and mouse chase between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro's character. Here it feels like just one kind of moment and it feels like we need... We needed to spend more time developing the relationship between the two of them, but still a, a good time. And you can see the influences in something like The Dark Knight and plenty of other action movies. Next, I have Poetry by Lee Chang Dong, which is, I think, only the second Ch uh, Lee Chang Dong movie I've seen. The other one being Burning, which I was a bit cold on. Poetry, however, is incredible. I think a masterpiece in terms of like what it is doing. As a premise, it is quite hard to pin down. Like a woman who has to deal with uh, this heinous crime that her grandson does, as well as the fact that she's trying to write a poem, which feels like two quite random things being shoved together. But I think Lee Chan Nong actually like finds something really beautiful with it, especially with that ending, which is equal parts serene as well as horrifying in a certain way and the kind of restraint and just gentleness that he kind of approaches the kind of sordid subject matter is a sight to behold and i mean it's the kind of film that like parts of it especially near the start when it's developing its elements feels a little bit almost boring and i was like wasn't sure where it was going but then it's the kind of film that as long as you give it enough time, it is able to generate a lot of emotive, emotional power by the end of it. And the main character, this grandmother, is becomes this such an interesting character to watch that you rarely, rarely see. Like you compare this with Bong Joon Ho's mother, which also, you know, has maternal character trying to 
protect their son or in this in poetry's case a grandson and that one kind of embraces something much more violent and animalistic whereas poetry really creates this internal struggle that you can feel with her even though it's not necessarily explicit it gives you enough so that you can enter the character's mind and like kind of experience what she's experiencing the same way that she is including her kind of search for inspiration for the poetry that also dovetails with how she's meant to engage and like respond to the thing that's happening within her family life which crazy weird crazy movie but it's kind of stuff like this is what i watch these kinds of art house movies for like to find this kind of perfect middle spot of something that is doing something very different but also telling a very engaging story next up i have basic instinct which i watched last night which i really liked it's basically my favorite hitchcock movie at this point it has so many hitchcockian elements that really hit for me but i think the fact that it is able to go really sexy and violent in a way that hitchcock could never do or rather couldn't do in his time like i'm sure he would have loved to have the sex and violence of of basic instinct in his film but obviously in his time wasn't able to kind of execute that in a way that will allow him to have people watch it um, but basic instinct just is able to kind of create this simple thriller trashy kind of pop novel plot and like really engage you in it and like use the the sex and violence to really draw you in and also Jan de Bont's cinematography uh undersung and I think it was really well done uh, I, I see he's also done Die Hard and I don't know what else he has done but his stuff is really expressive for what he's doing especially the low-lit scenes the use of window grills the use of uh things that change the the, the shading of the light whether it's like with rain or like with shadows, really good stuff. Yeah, Basic Instinct, really good. Um, in my letterbox review, I talk about it being something I like more than Vertigo. It definitely borrows a lot from the thematic stuff from Vertigo, but just because it's, I find more entertaining. And I always have an issue with Hitchcock where I find his stuff a little bit too dry. The thing is, Hitchcock is the Paul Verhoeven of his time. And I think that's why I don't particularly enjoy Hitchcock because he seems too sanitized by today's standards whereas Paul Verhoeven is able to push the boundaries or like is able to include all the sordid stuff and that's why I enjoy it more whereas Hitchcock's stuff feels a little bit dated in that sense and it's not his fault but when people started singing Hitchcock's praises it was really because he was making trash and people were starting to appreciate the craft that goes into trash it's still trash <laughs> but you know in a fun way, which I think Basic Instinct is able to hit that mark. And today I watched the new Koreeda film, Broker, which was good. I don't think it's his best, and I think it kind of pulls its punches, and the plot feels a bit underwritten, and the ending doesn't really quite work for me. I think it's a bit unearned, and going for something that's a bit too sentimental, a bit too easy, even though it shouldn't be so easy, I think this could have been a much more complicated film. Complicated in the same way that Shoplifters is. I mean, you look at the premise, it sounds like it has a bit of Shoplifters moral grayness, but Shoplifters is digging into that more, whereas Broker, I think, skirts the issue and then kind of has a bit of rose-tinted glasses in terms of the way it looks at its characters, and I think it doesn't quite earn that. 
but some of the scenes are great and I, I particularly love two scenes of IU that have these interesting elements of blocking or lighting that kind of create something that's just a little bit off and a little bit more interesting than just typical shot reverse shot within a dialogue sequence. The first one within a train where the light is changing because of the tunnels and then the other one on the ferris wheel which just has this one single physical action between two characters that is just so strange but also within the realm of Koreeda where he likes to obscure characters faces to kind of add a little bit of mystique into like what are they actually feeling because you can only read so much from a face and then once you take away the face then what do you or are you able to read so yeah it's definitely not his best stuff it really could have been more interesting i find the cop stuff fairly uninteresting but i understand that it needs to be there to kind of push the plot forward and uh, there's a few conveniences in terms of where people's kind of emotions lie within with respect to each other that kind of feel a bit too forced that i kind of think it needed more time to develop and if it was a different kind of film maybe it could have work better and because you know he's doing his found family kind of story and then it feels a bit engineered to become that kind of story within the context of this and when you can see the seams of a film like this then it becomes an issue and i think it's because it is so much like shoplifters and like other creator films that that the seams kind of show yeah but otherwise really well acted and all the scenes are great and all the acting is great so yeah, it's a bit of a shame. It could have been better, but yeah, that's Broker. Yeah, so that's the last five movies I've seen. I'm nearing the end of June, which I've seen, I don't know, 24 films out of the 28 days. Not hitting one day, which I've been trying to do, but doing pretty well. See you on the next one. Hey, Ben here again with another summer update. It is the 16th of July. Don't have too many things since I saw Broker on the 28th. Kind of slowed down my movie watching a little bit. I saw Kurosawa's Pulse, that's Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse, after watching Cure, which I really liked. Pulse was much, is a much slower fan, much more moody and creepy, I guess. But I think as good as it is, and it does create and sustain a very specific kind of alienating tone, it was starting to lose me because it was so slow and enigmatic. But definitely still worth checking out for what he's trying to do in terms of a story that's about connecting in the age of the internet kind of and using kind of like this old school technical stuff in terms of uh connectivity and like chat messaging and all that kind of stuff it's kind of a really strange movie i mean kurosawa was a pretty strange director and i think pretty idiosyncratic and i think it's definitely worth seeking out because of that and then on the 14th, I saw the new Thor movie, Love and Thunder. Terrible. Terrible because of the way that the plot works. Like, now the Marvel movies are definitely feeling like they are trying to plaster images or fan service on the screen. So obviously, this one is based on the pretty recent, I think, comic run. I know this from reading articles where... Jane Foster, I think that's her name, uh, played by Natalie Portman, takes up the mantle of Thor. And I guess a lot of the plot machinations is to get you to that point, to that image of uh, female Thor and then watching her kick ass. And then those things always feel so contrived. And 
that's kind of the problem with it. And then you have Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie like barely doing anything, which is pretty annoying because she plays the role with such fun that it feels a bit wasted. Now I'm just struggling to remember what the film really is about. It's just not very interesting and like not kind of lacking in terms of like imagination, even visually. Like there's nothing to really write home about. And you have this whole thing with God, God Butcher who wants to kill everyone and like whatever. Uh, definitely trying to kind of give you a sympathetic villain who is just mourning his daughter, but yeah, whatever. It's really not working for me. Kind of disappointing. I think I still watch all the Marvel stuff mainly because, I mean, at least compared to Star Wars, in terms of the big Disney franchises, it at least, you know, tries to be novel and interesting. But now it, it really is starting to, and I probably, I'm probably late to saying this, but the formula definitely is getting to me. And that's kind of a shame. On 16, I watch Park Chung-wook's new film, Decision to Leave, which I really enjoyed. One of my favorite films of the year, I think, right now. It's good because I think he kind of updates his style. It doesn't feel like old Park Chung-wook. It feels like new Park Chung-wook, which I really like. And the way that it kind of uses technology and the way that films, the use of technology is so fresh and modern. And the narrative is really interesting. Like it's romantic-ish and it's kind of, it's kind of violent, but not really. And a lot of it is just about dialogue and talking and about lies and like who to believe. And it whips by so fast like edit is completely insane like, it's so insane that i would say that sometimes to its detriment where you kind of start losing information but i still really respect that because it feels so fresh and it moves at such a pace and like goes through so much dialogue and like flip-flopping of the plot which is really interesting to watch and sometimes it does kind of lose you because of how much information it really tries to cram down your throat but definitely really worth watching the performances are great definitely i think really excited to see where Park goes in terms of the future, in terms of his future career, because he definitely still has so much left in the tank and like new ideas and all that. Surprising even, like usually you find like this kind of like hyper modern takes to be coming from younger directors, but here it feels like it is coming from kind of an old master in that sense. I mean, like you think about Parasite, which is maybe the most well-known modern Korean film, which is also very slick, but this is like almost too slick. Like, feels like a young person made it it's amazing and i rewatched rr on the whim when i was at my friend's place and just put it on for her parents and then watched the whole damn thing without realizing which is pretty crazy and it's very watchable so yeah that's this week till next time hey ben here again with another update it's the 27th of july i'm gonna talk about four films I'm going to start with Duel, which is the um, Riley Stearns feature. I saw his first one, Art of Self-Defense. Duel is kind of like playing in this kind of Yorgos Lanthimos style of deadpan, world building. And I mean, I, I did kind of enjoy it. I always love watching, oh my god, forgetting her name completely. Karen Gillett, yes, my god. always love watching her, but I think it felt a little, I mean, it's a pretty short movie. It felt a little thin in terms of what it was trying to do with its clone plot still i think generally enjoyable but just i think unremarkable which is a bit of a shame i don't really have much else to say about it and i think it definitely feels a bit like lanthimos light which is feels like a backhanded compliment but i mean it's it's not really so that's dual then i watched the innocence by askil volk 
who also was the writer on um, Worst Person in the World, which is kind of like a horror-ish superhero kids film. It's not really a superhero film, more like kids with powers. Kind of disturbing and strange. I, I didn't particularly enjoy it, and I, I guess I didn't really... It's hard to figure out what the point of it is. Like, what is the point of these strange kids, and like, why is this one kid such an asshole? Like, it's kind of a tough watch, and... Like, at the end of it, there's like a bit of a feeling of like, uh, so what? Yeah, I guess, if anything, I guess I could say it's like about how kids are terrible. Maybe if you give them powers, they're going to be worse. But, like, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you end for something kind of like a prestige, well-made, kind of B-movie-ish plot, like, that's kind of the appeal. But I didn't particularly enjoy it. So, yeah. That's the innocence. Next, we have the picnic at Hanging Rock. I've been starting this Peter Weir kind of my own Peter Weir retrospective, I guess you could say. Um, I've been hearing a lot of good things about this film. So I was looking at this filmography and how like varied it is. So I'm starting a picnic because it's one of his earlier, in fact, maybe the earliest film that he made. I'm not very sure about that. And definitely reminds me of Nicholas Rogue in terms of the way that this film is about like civilized quote-unquote civilized people in nature and then how nature changes them the australian new wave has always been kind of interested in that intersection of humanity and quote-unquote civilized humanity and nature and it's really interesting it's really a mood piece and like in its kind of mood piece it evokes a feeling but it doesn't have an answer it doesn't have a like a point which is interesting like i, I definitely struggle with films like this but this one definitely i feel the tone building and like the way that immerses you in its kind of world which i really appreciate it and it leaves this kind of mystery lingering in mind about what happened to these girls who disappear into hanging rock like really peculiar and i'm excited to see more peter weir stuff and lastly i'm going to talk about irma vet not the film actually but the longer film or rather the tv show by a24 where asai is comes back and makes a TV series reimagining of his, I think, 96 film or event that starred Maggie Chung. And I'm confused as to how blown away I am by the experience of watching this week by week. I was really involved with the characters and not in a very intense way. I'm not trying to figure out what happened. I'm just kind of interested in hanging out with them, which is really cool that he's able to craft these characters over eight episodes that you want to hang out with and like see where they go. And he was able to create little mini stories and arcs for all the characters which makes it really fun and like interesting and like a watch that gives you back your investment in time and the fact that he has these long sequences for the um remake of Le Vampire which he filmed some of those scenes for and then shows you the making of those scenes like I feel like it is better than the feature because it is able to luxury in its longer runtime and like gonna give you this whole sense of how the industry works and it is kind of one of my favorite, if not my favorite, film about making films. And I'm sure that's going to be a very niche opinion, but um, I really enjoyed it. And I think what he's doing with the Vidal character that is basically himself and like reaching into his past and like his grief about his relationship with Maggie Chung is so interesting and it's so masturbatory, but I am so okay with it for some bloody reason. Maybe it's because we all have a relationship with Maggie Chung. And 
it feels like a film that is our relationship with her as well because she disappears from our movie lives the same way she disappears from Asayas's actual life and their marriage is really interesting and the way I think she has an opinion about how films are and like the spirit of films is extremely pretentious but you really want to buy into it which I really like really surprised honestly by how much I liked it and really enjoyed tuning in week to week and the way it ends it just kind of ends you know the production ends and then you're gone and that's it and then obviously it has a bunch of flight of fancy kind of sequences or surrealistic sequences which are also very fun like a lot of it is quite campy I think in general the film the show was quite campy quite melodramatic and not nuanced I feel but still engaging and fun to watch if anything it reminds me of um, Day for Night I think and which is also really fun but of course that's a much more truncated experience and you don't really feel like you get to know them like everyone's just kind of an archetype here they are archetypes but you get to you know enjoy their presence over a long period of time you're not just like oh haha that's a this kind of person it's like oh this is this kind of person and we're gonna watch it happen watch how they react to the situations that arise so that's one of my favorite experiences actually this year i think kind of getting more interested in what asias is doing because of it still can't really get into him as a filmmaker but maybe i can get into him as a television maker who knows anyway till next update bye hey again ben here i don't know when was the last time you heard me i know this is all going to get cut together with everyone else's but it's been a month more than a month even since um my last update which is way back in the end of july i've not really been watching stuff in august i was watching a lot of tv i guess but try try to kind of close out august and the summer with a kind of flurry of films i was watching so here's my final update i guess for the summer and i've watched uh, what is this five films in the last week to kind of make up for it <sighs> what a waste of august but it's okay there'll be more things to watch in the future yeah so i watched um audrey Dewan's, i believe feature debut happening which is about a woman who's trying to get an abortion in i believe 60s france Cross interested and like intrigued because it sounds very similar to my favorite film of I forgot which year never never really sometimes always which is also kind of this journey towards an abortion kind of storyline and I think happening is okay and I think it is too simple and never really sometimes always is simple but I think had this central relationship which is the friendship between main character and her cousin that gives you this sense of connection or something to root for that isn't just an individual person it's a connection and here of course the main character in happening is disconnected from everyone because of the fact that she is seeking an abortion or like is having unprotected sex that caused her to be pregnant that makes everyone shun her and then it also goes into the um, horrors of having to find an abortionist that is not sanctioned by the state because abortion is illegal in that time and goes in kind of not body horror but just the general horror of doing that through kind of back alley abortions but yeah i mean like it, it feels a bit miserableist just reading it out it's not terribly so i think in its depiction it's still okay i think sensible but i think in that sense it's kind of by the numbers in the way that it portrays this journey that doesn't really make it rise above the material which is a bit of a shame and this is just a random note but the 
main character goes through her wardrobe like five times and they keep showing her in the same outfit or like the same colors of outfit which is extremely confusing and then i think really took me out of the film surprisingly like and i think sometimes you overlook what costumes can do but here the kind of i would say lack of attention to costume causes you to forget how long things have gone for and also confuses the continuity of what's going on and also feels too almost contrived the fact that she's always wearing blue that it breaks the immersion of the film for some reason because obviously this is not a stylized film it's not a film where a character has a color or uniform that identifies them there's a film about a functionally real person going through something that is real so that kind of stylization actually hurts it i think for me strange yes but yeah that's happening on the 26th i watched tokyo sonata which is kurosawa's kind of family drama about uh, a family struggling during the recession i guess i think the the great recession and really good i really enjoyed it and um i've been kind of going on this slow kurosawa kick and i was interested in this because it was not a horror film and it feels like an ee type thing but with kurosawa's kind of touch of idiosyncrasy which is really interesting like he has a sense of humor about things which makes it really fun like i think for a film that sounds dour about a man who loses his job or like his son who wants to join the army overseas and his younger son who wants to be a piano who wants to learn piano but they have no money for it and how he doesn't want to tell his family that he has quit his job like it sounds very miserable on paper but i think he has this deadpan strange peculiar sense of humor that really peeks through that makes it feel very unique and kind of makes it shine outside of what i think is quite a obviously burgeoning genre of sad asian family stories especially stories set in the uh recession i think in 08 or whatever so yeah i think it's really hard to describe like how it has like these weird sense of humor about things especially when um the main character meets this guy who's also unemployed and like sets up this elaborate way of pretending not just to other people but to himself that he's employed yeah like i think definitely worth seeking out tokyo sonata then next we have i finally watched 2021's red rocket from sean baker who is one of my favorite currently working directors i, I really liked tangerine florida project and so florida project i really like for its kind of way of telling a story like this kind of quotidian episodic kind of nature and the kids are great and the way that he kind of is able to craft an authentic story about people who are poor and working class and i think that's within a very specific place and i think he does something very similar with this and he's able to kind of repeat that thing where he's able to get into a community figure out how they live and portray it in what feels like authentic i wonder if it is actually yeah and i think this story which is on paper very sorted this guy I think his name is Rex or something. Or oh, the, char- the the actor's name is Simon Rex. Character's name is Mikey. Mikey Saber, who's a porn star. Then the A plot really is him trying to seduce a young seventeen year old and make her into a porn star that he can kind of pimp out and like make money off of, which is crazy. But his character Mikey is so weirdly charismatic, and I think it's such an interesting story about American grifters that. Is fascinating. I think obviously, like with 
the stuff within the context of the film where they show you Trump rallies, posters, yada, yada, yada. That this is what is on Sean Baker's mind. And he does a really good job of making an allegory out of the character of Mikey Saber and how he seems well-meaning, seems to be getting his life together, but actually is using everyone around him. And you still kind of love him. And like, I wouldn't say root for him, but like you still kind of want to see if he's going to make it. And I think that is kind of a very interesting idea of what American stories are about. Because I think that's kind of what American stories... Like, that's the backbone of American stories. Like, the American story is about can you figure out a way to fake it till you make it or cheat it till you hit it? And I think that is fascinating. That that is what the backbone of what American stories are about. Or like what we feel are American stories. Like, you think about like stories about people who make it in business that's kind of like you, you they got to figure out how they can cheat the system so that they can put themselves on top or even like mafia movies you know cowboy movies like i think that's part of the dna of what american movie is and i think this film gets that and i think that's just fascinating yeah so that's for rocket next i have all right i finally watched jordan peele's nope which was disappointing i think I think that central conceit that this is kind of like a monster movie is interesting. But the problem, I think, is that I don't really understand why this is a film about a brother and sister owning a ranch that trains movie star horses. Like, everything about image making and whatnot is confusing. The themes of, like, it being kind of about filmmaking is a little bit half-baked, I feel. And the kind of way that you enter the story is strange. Like, I don't, the characters, the main characters here don't really make sense to me. If anything, the only character that really makes sense is the character that Steven Yeun plays, who is this side character that gets the most fascinating backstory that feels so shoehorned into this film that it feels like he should have been the main character of a different film, and this film should have been about something else entirely different. So there is a feeling of contrivance in terms of how the film is constructed so that he can so that Peel can make certain kinds of images or certain kinds of sentences that seem like theme but are not theme. So yeah, I don't know. Like it is a weird one. And I think the more I think about it, the worse it gets, which is sad. And I mean that's kind of a problem with most horror films and the allegories that they have. But this one especially feels like even in the moment of watching it, it already is confusing or missing the mark. And as you think about it, it really starts to crumble. I think he needs to make a dumb movie. Like this film I thought looked pretty good and like is interesting to watch. And the design of the kind of horror is so interesting and fascinating and awe-inspiring even. But it doesn't really rise above those things or it's allegory it's trying to make is kind of missing mark that i almost feel like it shouldn't even bother with that it should just have made a straight horror movie that has these interesting elements and just gone with it it would have been much more entertaining which is really interesting when you talk about when i talk about my next film which is prey which is kind of set in the predator franchise but about the native american i think the 1700s during kind of the civil war period who needs to beat the fucking predator coming to Earth, who is sort of like a primitive version of the predator, but is so bloody invisible, has all these crazy weapons, 
and she has to use her ingenuity to defeat this predator. And you know what? I thought it was pretty well made and like pretty entertaining. As an action movie, really goes through like different action scenes and then is able to plant more and more elements that show up at the end of it for her to finally, not spoilers, try to defeat the predator. And I think it succeeds because each set piece feels fresh and interesting and you do root for her as a character. I guess my only gripe is maybe the ending and how we get to that ending. And I feel it starts to confuse a little bit in terms of the kind of action world. Like it feels somewhat rooted in some kind of realism in the way that she fends off the predator throughout the film. But in the final end, she has a final strategy, which is completely confusing. And I'm okay with us not being walked through what point, what the strategy is. But when you see executed, it is so confusing but it's okay, I give it a pass. Like, it's still an entertaining action film. So anyway, this is the 31st of August. That's where we're kind of putting the cutoff for this summer thing. I don't know what it's called. But yeah, so that was my summer. I watched not as many films as I had hoped because of this dead zone in August. And July was pretty thin as well. But still, a decent number of films. Till next time, and until the next episode of Deep Cut. We're going to be coming back soon, and I can't wait for that. Catch you guys on the next one. Bye. Future Ben here again. If you listen to the entire thing all the way through, thank you. I really appreciate it. And if you're listening to this because you just listened to the review of Prey, I thank you as well. And if you're here, just a reminder to rate and review the show if you haven't, and subscribe to us wherever you listen podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. And you can follow us at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. And remember, you can also join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. And as always, thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Ben. Take care. And Wilson, Eli, and I are looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. See ya.